Let's open the Word of God, please, to Luke chapter chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and go all the way back to verse 40. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. We're going to be thinking about the real, real meaning of Christmas for the next three weeks, and we're going to emphasize that the real, real meaning of Christmas, you're going to hear a lot about the real meaning of Christmas, uh, it's all about the children, peace on earth, try to do the right thing, those kind of generic things. But we're going to focus on the real, real meaning of Christmas, which is just simply this. The babe in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. This past week I got uh, my Christmas packet from Jews for Jesus. They send me a Christmas packet every year. And uh, this card says, this season means... And Jeff gives you a line here, if you can fill, fill in what the season means to you. And then on the back, they suggest some of the answers they get every year. Uh, giving thanks. This season means giving thanks. It means providing for those in need. It means food. It means reflecting upon the past year. Maxing out our credit cards. More time with the family. A time to connect with God. Stress or hope, we're going to deal with what the real, real meaning is for the next couple of weeks, and we're going to do it differently than I think I've ever done it before. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2 backwards so we can end up in Bethlehem for the birth of the last Sunday before Christmas. So this week we're going to look at verses 40 through 52, the last portion of that chapter, and we'll see Jesus at age 12 celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. Then, Lord willing, next week we'll see Jesus as an infant, as a 40-day-old infant in Jerusalem be presented and dedicated at the temple. And then, Lord willing, on the 18th we'll look at the birth as recorded by the Gospel of Luke. But, before we do that, let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word. I mean, that the Holy Spirit, who inspired this text and has preserved it, might illuminate it way beyond the ability of any of the teachers around here, including especially me. Let's also remember our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters as well. Okay, so uh, Jack Smith, if you would uh, lead us in that direction, would you? Well, you know, according to Jews for Jesus, one of the things that's associated with this time of year is stress, and I think that's probably true at a lot of different levels. But this past week I was going over a long list of reasons that uh, Santa Claus might be stressed out. And it turns out there are top three of those signs that he's stressed out I'd like to share with you. Top three signs Santa Claus is stressed out. After Christmas this year, he's planning to quit his job, move to Miami, Florida, and begin a new career as a male swimsuit model. That's his plan. Last week, he posted an angry rant on Facebook, bitterly denouncing the ministry of the Easter Bunny. You know, just being envious of other people's ministry is a bad thing. And finally, no applause because we're going to end this thing. Just this morning, he fired his brightest elf, or brightest reindeer. I'm all excited about, excited about the elf part. Let me start over. Just this morning, he fired his brightest reindeer, Rudolph, and his tallest elf, Ron Miller. So, yeah. Now, because content without context leads to confusion, 
Let's look at the broad context of this portion of the Gospel of Luke. Very amazingly organized, and it helps us if we appreciate kind of from the helicopter, synthetic view, what's happening in this portion of the Gospel. You notice that Luke likes to put things together in couplet form, uh, in twin form, not necessarily identical twin, but fraternal twin. And although we're going to be looking at uh, verses 40 through 52 of chapter 2, look at what happens before and after that. First, after the prologue of the book, the first four verses, in verse uh, 5 through 25 of chapter 1, we have an announcement, an angelic announcement of the coming birth of John the Baptist to his father in the temple. And John the Baptist wasn't a Baptist, okay? It's important you know that. Ioan uh, ha baptizon means John the baptizing one. And present active uh, participles like that are labels. John the Jew that baptized people, because Jews didn't baptize people. So he's John the baptizing Jew, the forerunner, the, mess- the prophetic forerunner for the Messiah. So we're anticipating through that announcement the birth of John the Baptist. The next passage, Luke records, he's not making this up, but he is arranging it so it makes sense. We have the angelic announcement of the coming birth of Jesus to his mother and then later to his father, earthly father. Uh, so we have John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. Um, you know what John the Baptist, Smokey the Bear, and uh, Attila the Hun have in common? They all have the same middle name. Brad, you've told that joke too many times to this group. Save it for Cameron. Okay, I will do that. The announcement is followed by the actual birth, and Luke just follows this up. He's got you excited about these births that are coming. Then he records the actual birth of John the Baptist. Big blessing, because his parents are too old to get pregnant, okay? Kind of like Abraham and Sarah. It's a super normal kind of birth. Couldn't happen. Then we have the birth of Jesus, virgin birth, but it's really a virgin conception and a normal vaginal birth. Uh, although it's interesting that you'd expect the Son of God to be put into a jewel-encrusted bassinet, wouldn't you? Where is he? Yeah, he, he, there's no room in the, in the Holiday Inn, so they're in a stable, and he is put temporarily in a, a feeding trough. And so God works in surprising ways, and he's not nearly as religious as a lot of people are. And that confuses folks, but read the Bible, it'll help you on that. Then we see the adoration of Jesus as uh, an infant in uh, verses 21 through 39. We'll look at that passage next week. And today we're going to look at the advancement of Jesus as a young boy. Uh, he's, he's growing in wisdom and in stature. Okay. So there's our passage today. We're going to see one general truth about Jesus as a boy in this very unusual passage. And let's just read that verse there. The child, and by the way, when you get to Luke 2.40, the previous reference to Jesus was when he was 40 days old. So Luke likes to take big jumps sometimes, Trey, and you've got to be aware of that. At the end of his, his gospel, he describes the uh, resurrection and then immediately describes the ascension. And you almost might think they happen on the same day, but it can't be that because in his other book called Acts, he clearly says there's a 40-day period. So he, he likes to jump from one major scene to another, and sometimes you have to use other materials to kind of tease out the chronology. So he's talking about Jesus first as an 8-day-old boy and then a 40-day-old little baby in the previous passage, and then we jump to where he's 12 years old, 
and we read the child from the time he was 40 days old until now that he's 12 in the passage that follows, continued to grow in his humanity and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now let's look, look at this one specific example of Jesus as a boy. This is the only passage like this in the New Testament. We see the birth in Matthew and Luke. We see his ministry starting at about 30 in the other Gospels, but this is the one place, uh, Doug, we're going to find out the details, a little bit of details of what Jesus would have been like as a, as a young boy. And look at verse uh, 41. Now, his parents, his human parents, Joseph and Mary, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. What does that mean? Very important. Passover was probably the most important annual feast at a popular level. I'd argue Day of Atonement's more important theologically. And as our uh, Anthony uh, Stephen Prothero from Boston University will say, the most important Jewish holiday is the Sabbath in his mind because you celebrate it every week. But the Passover was this, it was the first major holiday in their year, their religious calendars denoted there. And it celebrated and remembered the events of Exodus 12, where Moses led a million people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and moving toward the promised land. And as God had to work to convince Pharaoh to allow those people to leave, he had to send plagues on Egypt. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn. But those who would sacrifice a lamb, a spotless lamb with no visible blemishes, take that blood and put it on the outside of the door, and who were in the house covered by the protected door by the blood, the death angel passed over that night, and the firstborn child and the firstborn of all the livestock did not die. So uh, I wonder who that lamb in the Passover ultimately is prefiguring, anticipating, the person that John the Baptist, the prophet, says that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So uh, it's very interesting that the very person who's going to fulfill the typology, the Passover here, uh, is going to be involved in celebrating the Passover. His parents went every year because they made it a priority. Okay, uh, Jewish men were supposed to attend three feasts in Jerusalem every year, if at all possible. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. The first and the most important of those three was Passover, and his parents made it a, a point to go every year. Women were not mandatory, required to go, but they could, and Mary wanted to go along, and it was just their pattern. They made it a priority to be plugged into this and uh, to celebrate it. Verse 42, And when he, that is Jesus, last time we saw him in Luke, he was 40 days old, became 12, they his parents and him and his extended family and probably a lot of acquaintances from Nazareth too, uh, went up there. Up where? Talking about heaven? <laughs> no, they live in Nazareth in the northern part of the country. And we're talking about, uh, we're going to Jerusalem. Uh, here's a map of first century Israel. Okay, You've got the Jews living in the southern part called Judea. Jews living in the northern part called Galilee. Who lived in the middle part? The Samaritans and the Jews loved to hate the Samaritans. But you know what? The Samaritans didn't like the Jews either. But the Samaritans were part Assyrian, part Gentile, and part Jewish. And they kind of uh, watered down the law and had done some things morally and theologically weren't very good. So the Jews thought they had their reasons not to 
want to connect with these people, even though Jesus himself did not buy into those prejudices. But they're living in Nazareth now, and Jesus is an apprentice carpenter for his, for his dad. And we've got to get down here to Jerusalem, which is like 75 or 80 mile walk or riding in the back of an ox cart or however they went. And most likely, they would have taken this route because we've got Mary and Joseph and Jesus and some of the extended family and some of the neighbors in some kind of caravan of maybe 40 or 50 people uh, going around Samaria, Samaria, as the custom, and going to Jerusalem. So it wasn't easy. Uh, I remember when uh, we moved to uh, Duncan 28 years ago, you know, we had Jamie and Jonathan. He's second grade. He's kindergarten. And we uh, uh, got here in December when we start school in January. And we found out there wasn't enough room in uh, Horace Mann, the closest school to where we lived at the time, for both those boys to attend. So we had to have, uh, what was it? Jamie was in uh, Horace Mann, and Jonathan for that one semester went to Plato. And people were just commiserating with us in the church and everywhere in the whole city. I can't believe you got to drive both those kids to two different schools every day. And we'd lived in Dallas and Houston and Shreveport, and we thought, this is a piece of cake, people. I mean, there ain't no problem here unless you want to see it that way. But uh, sometimes people say, well, golly, you know, if we were on Highway 81 and maybe had a pastor who was better, maybe we would attract more people. But uh, you'd probably get a new pastor, but I'm not sure being on 81 is going to help us. It didn't help the Seventh-day Adventists much, did it? But uh, I don't think it's that hard to get here, uh, weather permitting, of course. When you're in Oklahoma, that's the, the hyphen there. But it wasn't easy for them uh, to pack up and take basically a three-day trip to get to Jerusalem, stay a week for Passover and Unleavened Bread uh, celebration, and then go back. So you know, if it had been easy, uh, they uh, might have gotten so comfortable they didn't do it anymore. But it wasn't easy. They were committed, so they did it anyway. We talked about that last week, about the importance of being committed to really important things and making a way to invest your time and your focus to that, right? Look at verse 43. Through the middle of verse 44. I'm going to stop in the middle for a reason. And as they were returning, so this is just Luke saying they went down for Passover and for unleavened bread, those those two separate holidays kind of merged in one another because there'd be one big thing. And as they were returning back to Nazareth, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. Now, to me, first time I heard this story as a little kid in Sunday school, and I was probably eight or nine years old. I mean, I couldn't believe how in the world could... Mom and dad not remember to make sure Jesus was in the back of the car. That's the way we traveled, you know. Um, my dad worked for Pittsburgh Des Moines Steel Company, and he built uh, oil storage tanks all over the United States. And uh, I was the first of four, and when I was born, I just, as a baby, I don't remember much of it, but we drove all over the United States wherever he was working. And then right before I got to be kindergarten age, they decided... And he drove from Seattle to Maine to New Mexico, California, and everything. Right before I started kindergarten, they thought they wanted to have one you know, domicile where I could have a stable school situation. So they picked Miami, Florida, Opelika, Florida. And, uh, you know, I still don't understand. Why would you pick Miami, Florida when you have to drive all over the country? You know, because that's like as far away. It takes you 400 miles just to get out of Florida if you go due north. But, yeah, we were all over the place there. And uh, my memories of trips with my parents from the youngest I can remember 
was every summer, wherever my dad was working, he'd drive to Miami, Florida. He'd get us. We'd spend the summer with him, all, the whole family, his wife and my mom and uh, the kids, you know. And I thought, there ain't no way. My, my dad might be so engrossed in his country western station, mainly uh, Ernest Tubb, who's his favorite. He might be listening to that so intently. He might leave me, you know, at the, at the gas station or something. That could happen. That was conceivable to me. But ain't no my, way my mom would leave me when we're on a trip like this. And when I heard this as a little kid, how in the world could Mary and or Joseph leave Jerusalem without their 12-year-old kid? It just kind of blew my mind. It kind of gave me nightmares, actually. I've learned another truth. But it's just like, how in the world is that possible? I think that's a very good question. We'll talk about probably what happened there in a minute. But the point is, after eight days of celebration, their heart's in the right place. They're worshiping the true God of the Bible. Uh, his parents pack up to go back with the caravan back home. Uh, they leave. Jesus stays behind. His parents don't notice. But supposing him to be in the caravan somewhere, uh, typically these caravans of 40 or 50 people would have the men leading from the front in case there were robbers. There were issues back then, especially near Jericho. There were a lot of bad banditos wanting to, to beat you up and take your stuff. So you'd have kind of two groups. The men would be lead the way, and they'd be talking their hunting stories and their fishing stories and football stories. And we're not talking about football today. And uh, whatever they talk about, politics. And then, you know, behind, not because the women weren't able to keep up, but because they've got to take care of all the kids and the little kids. Can you relate to that? You know, it'd be hard to kind of keep up with the guys when you're taking care of a couple of little babies. So they would, tip, you know, be 100 yards behind or whatever. And the whole community would kind of go that way for safety. So probably what happens, since Jesus is 12, and you don't become a son of the covenant till you're 13, Bar Mitzvah, son of the covenant, you know, son of the commandment. So he's kind of right on the threshold of adulthood religiously. So I think the men, Joseph probably just assumed he's with Mary. And Mary just assumes he's with Joseph. And you might say, well, wouldn't he have been with the group he was with when they came down? Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe uh, they would assume they, you know, go down with the men, go back with the women or whatever like that. But it's just a breakdown in communication logistics. And the point is, Jesus is in Jerusalem as they're heading back home uh, to Nazareth. And that sounds kind of crazy, but that's just what happened. And again, this is not the kind of thing you'd make up. So supposing him to be somewhere in the caravan, they go the whole first day, and when they get to their um, appointed campsite for that night, middle of verse 40, they begin looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So you've got 40 or 50 people from Nazareth, not just the immediate family, but the friends uh, of the family, neighbors and stuff. And so they look with the women. Mary's looking for the Jesus with the men, and Joseph's looking for Jesus with the with the with the gals. And they did not find him, so they um, returned to Jerusalem looking for him along the way. <laughs> not knowing, they knew he was somewhere between where they went to camp uh, that night and the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and that must have been a scary thing. That's every parent's nightmare, isn't it? And I do remember, um, you get traumatized by these things, but I do remember one, I was very small, but I must have been four or five years old. Uh, my dad, who drove down from Michigan to wherever he was working to be with us for Christmas that year, he and I went to go buy our Christmas tree. Now, kids, this is back when they actually had real trees, and you go to a lot, we went to the grocery store, you know, and buy a real tree that would, slowly kind of lose all its needles over the next two weeks and make a mess of your, your, your house and stuff. 
But I remember we picked out a Christmas tree. I was so excited. Picked out a Christmas tree. And then as we're walking to the car, I'm kind of, it's, it was cold in Miami, Florida. It was probably like 70 degrees or something. So I remember being, you know, really wrapped up. And I'm walking toward the car with my head down, kind of excited about the Christmas tree. And I'm holding a guy's hand. And I took a couple of steps and I looked up. And it was somebody I'd never seen before. And I was terrified. I thought he was trying to kidnap me. Then I looked at my dad. He's, he's, he's laughing. I just had picked the wrong hand. So you wonder why I'm messed up, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> but yeah, that, that happened. That, that happened. And he, he was watching me. But you know what? As a Christian, I've thought about that later. Uh, you know, I, I had the wrong hand. When I looked up, I was terrified, assuming the worst. But my dad was watching me the whole time. I was perfectly safe. That's the way it is in the Christian life, you know. It, when you're going through a valley, God knows He's right there. He's watching. He's He's in control. You got to rest in that. I wasn't in the danger I thought I was in, but I never forget that story. If I, I should have brought that up to him later in my adult life, but I never did. Look at verse 46. So we're, we're looking for Jesus now. They, they've taken a full day's travel away, assuming Jesus was in the other group. Uh, the next day, they immediately go. As soon as it gets daylight, I'm sure they go back down. So it takes them a day to get to Jerusalem. And now on the third day, they're looking for him in Jerusalem. Verse 46 says, Then after three days, they found him in the temple. Now you might read that saying they were, they were looking for him in Jerusalem for three days. After three days, they found him in the temple. That doesn't mean that. One day traveling away, one day traveling back, and then one day, part of one day, looking for him and finding him. It's interesting, but uh, some people who don't understand the way language works sometimes want to tell us there was a Wednesday crucifixion or a Thursday crucifixion as opposed to a Friday crucifixion because you have statements like Jesus saying in Math in Mark 8:31, the Son of Man will be delivered to the hands of sinful men and he'll be killed, but after three days he'll rise again. So you know you can't have a Friday crucifixion because Friday is one day, Saturday's another day. Sunday's another day, so it's got to be like Monday. It can't be Monday, it's got to be Sunday, so it's got to be uh, Thursday or Wednesday, depending on how they describe that. But in fact, after three days, kind of like raining cats and dogs, that's, that's, if you can come up with a better idiom, I'll use it, but I just like that one, okay? When we say it was raining cats and dogs, we understand we're not saying small mammals are coming out of the air, it's just raining really hard. Just an idiom, right? Just a figure of speech. So the term, especially in the Jewish mind, after three days typically meant after three days, including the third day. So, but analytical Aristotelian thinkers will say that means after two days. That's not the way they use the term. Uh, you can prove that easily because in passages like Mark 8.31 and its exact parallel in Luke, you have Mark saying after three days, but then in Luke, it says on the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday on the third day. So after three days and on the third day mean the same thing. And it's not a problem. It's not a mistake. It's an idiom. You can find that throughout the Old Testament where they talk about on the third day. Esther talks about that. Uh, I pray for three days and on the third day she does it. So she prayed after three days, meaning after three days, including the third day. I could say that again, but I'm not. Okay. Now watch. So they're looking for him on the third day since they left, and they found him in the temple. Now, we tend to think that the tabernacle was the tent that moved around, and then when they solidified their political status, they built a temple. Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem. It's a building. So when we think 
that they found him in the temple of Wanda, we tend to think he's in the building somewhere, in the temple. Like today we'd say, I saw David in the church this morning, meaning in the church building. But as you probably know, uh, this building was basically for priests only, right? So he didn't go in there. Anywhere inside this area is called the temple. There's, a, there's actually different Greek words for temple. There's one word that means only this. There's another word that can mean anything within the temple mount, the area immediately surrounding the temple. So Jesus would have been somewhere in the temple mount area, and it was very common in these colonnaded areas where rabbis would sit around and talk all day about theological issues. So when we're, we're, don't think of him as, uh, you know, kind of interacting with these priests inside the holy place of the temple. This means somewhere in the temple area they find him. And when they find him, he's sitting in the midst of the teachers. What does that mean? Not a teacher, but the teachers. People who were big shots in first century Judaism who really knew their stuff. But here's the problem. By the time of the first century, the uh, the Jewish system embraced what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, but what they really taught and talked about was what they called the oral law. The oral law was what the rabbis for centuries had said the actual law of the scripture really meant. And in some cases, there's no problem taking general principles. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. And then as an application for preachers or Bible teachers to suggest some specific ways that we might do that as husbands. But if you codify my comments or my notes or Chuck Swindoll's comments or your favorite preacher this week, including Joel Olstein, and if you're including him, you better have a marker so a lot of it you want to mark out. But uh, I knew I'd get in trouble, even though I didn't say anything about football. But, uh, but uh, yeah, they had elevated what's called the oral law to a higher standard. So guess what? In a message like Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount? Basically he says, you have heard it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know where they heard that being said? The oral law through the rabbis. Does the scripture ever say that? No. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, what the scripture means, not what the oral law says, is you should love even your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you and that kind of thing. So that tension is there. So the good news is Jesus is fully aware of who he is and very happy to interact with those uh, type people who are theologically astute. The problem is what they're selling, what they're preaching, what they're teaching is what we would call the oral law, what they called the oral law. And they thought what they were doing is the scripture was so holy, let's build a hedge around it, the oral law, and that will protect it. But you end up with scruples more stricter than God's. And when you come up with scruples stricter than God's, New Testament or Old Testament, and then use that, those things, as a litmus test to self-righteously look down your nose at other people, you're getting very far away from the heart of God. That's the problem. Now, there's a document that modern Judaism uses, um, and, you know, it's interesting. You look at Judaism, I think a lot of Christians assume the Judaism we read about in the New Testament is what the Judaism of modern times is, and it's not that at all. You've kind of got what's called Old Testament religion, or, or uh, now Old Testament religion would be 
from the scriptures through the first century, contaminated increasingly by the oral law. And then the second phase of Judaism, which continues to this day, is called rabbinic religion. And you've got the different branches. You've got Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed, and Reconstructionist, and Kabbalah, and you've got other things that spun off of it. But in about 500 A.D., the rabbis got together and said, forget about this oral law thing that we're remembering, is memorizing. Let's write this down in a book, in really a, a collection of books called the Talmud. So if you've heard of the Talmud, the Talmud is the written written version of the Old Testament law. Remember that, Savannah? You learned that back in World Religions a long time ago. But the Talmud is the, is the written form of the oral law, and it's the oral law that's being pushed in the New Testament uh, and it's uh, still to this day the thing that many observant Jews think, if I can just obey the Talmud good enough, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will let me eventually get to heaven. But as Sonia knows, the law of God is not designed to be a ladder by which we climb to God. It's a mirror that shows us we need a Savior, and that Savior is prefigured by things like the Passover and the Day of Atonement, and that Savior is, in fact, Jesus Christ. So anyway, the parents have left. They come back. On the third day, they find him after apparently looking in the playgrounds and the video arcades and the Apple Store and all these other places. Um, I'm reading that in, but I think it's correct based on context. And they eventually find him in the temple precincts, not the building, but somewhere on the Temple Mount. And he's sitting. That's the teaching position, by the way. <laughs> Listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him, Jesus, this 12-year-old kid, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, do you see that? That's pretty interesting. Um, you read that, and, well, you've got a 12-year-old kid asking these people questions because there's a lot he doesn't know. I don't see it that way at all. There's a technique that's attributed to the Greek philosopher Socrates. It's called the Socratic method of teaching. That's where you teach by asking questions. A lot of law schools do it that way. If you saw the movie Paper Chase, uh, Dr. Kingsfield gets up there, and he doesn't really lecture. He just asks questions, you know, and one question leads to another. And if you're really a good teacher, I'm not nearly a good enough teacher to use Socratic method, uh, you can actually get people to think much beyond a basic level. That's the way the rabbis did, too. So rather than Jesus sitting here uh, asking for information about things he didn't know so he could believe, He's respectfully asking these guys who are propping up a corrupt system about what they believed and why. Okay, So he's asking them questions, and uh, I think respectfully, but to tease out where they're coming from, and people who are watching and hearing this were amazed at his answers. He's asking questions, and he's giving answers, and I got a feeling uh, the uh, the rabbis were learning from him, not the other way around. Okay, but Watch this. Look at verse 48. When they, Joseph and Mary, who haven't seen him for three days, this is the third day they haven't seen him, and they come to town that morning, and they've been looking around all over the place in Jerusalem, and finally come to the temple, and they find him. They were astonished, A, at the way he was holding court there. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? You almost gave me a heart attack. Okay? This is a Jewish mother. I mean, she probably had some, you know, chicken noodle soup or something. You know, where they're right, not what they do. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Uh, and look at his response. 
which is not sarcastic. It's not disrespectful. It's just he's saying as I Howard Marshall here and I Howard Marshall quote uh, James for you. I Howard Marshall said, quote, paraphrasing what Jesus meant here, uh, you should not have been anxiously looking any and everywhere for me. You should have known where I would be. You know, uh, back in the old days when they actually had bookstores at malls, remember that? Uh, Debbie and I would go to the mall as young, young marriage. We don't go to the mall that much anymore because we're old and we'd rather do it. You know, we'd rather take our vitamins in convenient pill form. We'd rather shop by way of our fingers, you know, unless we want to buy some jewelry, then we buy it from Sharon, but she gives us the TBF uh, uh, discount there. But back you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago, whenever they had bookstores in the malls, you know, we'd go to the mall, and, you know, I, I'd usually drop her off at the door if she'd let me. Sometimes she wouldn't let me do that. But either way, whenever we got in the door, we would part, okay? We'd separate, you know? Um she would go to all the other stores, and I'd go to the bookstore, you know, and uh, if or the sporting goods store. And this is before cell phones. One great thing about cell phones is you can go to restaurants or sporting events or the mall now, and you can find out where the other person is easily. I mean, how did you realize they actually got in stagecoaches in St. Louis and went all the way across to California without cell phones, without government financing or government programs or EPA or anything? It's amazing. But, yeah. I always thought, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if she ever did this, but if we were at a mall and went separate ways and we said, we'll get together at, in an hour, and I was engrossed look, looking through some book or something at a bookstore, waiting in line at a bookstore, you know, if she went into, uh, did, they have, did they have hardware stores at malls? I don't go to hardware stores. She does, she's the hardware person. Um, this clothing stores, shoe stores, uh, what other kind of stores they have? Hat stores, whatever they got. You know, if... If she's looking for me in the mall back in the old days, the only place she should look is the sporting goods store or the bookstore, right? And I always felt like that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. Apparently, they've looked at the playgrounds. They've looked at the video arcade stores. Not really. That's an anachronism. They're looking all over the place. And it's kind of like one of the last places they looked is, oh, yeah, he seems to always be talking about God a lot. And we know about his birth. So we know about his destiny. But we're not quite sure how that blends into where he is now as a 12-year-old. And say, oh, better, let's go to the temple before we, you know, get too panicked. It's like the last thing, and they're just, just, you know, and you can, you know, forgive a mom's heart here. I don't condemn Mary at all. Uh, I can't remember a time when we couldn't find Jamie or Jonathan or, heaven forbid, one of the seven grandkids now. Although, you know, uh, I'm thinking, like, next weekend we get both sets of twins again, which is uh, the ultimate test of spirituality and sanctification for me personally. <laughs> Since they can all walk now. And so you just pray nobody has to go to the ER for two days because you realize any major injury means you may never see those kids again for the rest of your life, you know. But, uh, yeah, I, I think the last time we had all four of them, uh, yeah, Debbie had to go for, to a shower. I didn't say she had to go take a shower. She had to go to a wedding shower. So I had, I had solo custody of four little kids. Uh, that are just a little older than three of the big ones and now 18 months of the little ones. It's just me, one-on-one with four little kids. I mean, I can't do this, you know. And there were a couple times when you're trying to entertain three of them. One peels off, you don't notice it, and then you realize, I haven't seen Eloise for five minutes. I mean, mean, she couldn't have gotten out of the house, but who knows where she is. She's under a bed or something. She's an exploratory member of the family, you know. So I can understand this. I mean, Mary has got to assume the worst when you are, you know, one day's trip out of Jerusalem. There were banditos and kidnappers and killers and child molesters back then, too. 
So you, you got to wonder, is he okay? And you don't see him on the on the side of the road anywhere. There's no carcass, so you assume he must be in Jerusalem. And you look around the whole city, and you eventually say, let's go to the temple before we give up. And you know, so so she's astonished, and out of ex, ex you know exasperation, out of uh, her fears being you know relieved, and her love for her son. So why have you treated like this? I mean, you gave me a heart attack. You scared me to death. And and we've been anxiously looking for you all over the place. And he says, "Hey, mom, why didn't you, why didn't you look here first? You know, um, you know, no harm, no foul. But um, should uh, why did you anxiously look all over the place? You should have known where I would be." And look at what she look what he says here. This is the first recorded words of Jesus anywhere in the four Gospels from a chronology point of view. It's a twelve year old kid. He says, "Why is it you were looking for me anywhere else but where my priority is?" Kind of thing. Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Now, King James says, about my father's business. And the Greek text literally says, in the things of my father. Okay? The word house isn't there. That's a possible... They, they put that in italics in a good English translation, which means it's, they think it's implied by the original, but li- not literally there. And that would make sense. The King James, I've got to be about my father's business, is their attempt in 1611 of rendering into vernacular English in the things of my father. But the point is, you should have basically known where I was going to be, Mom. And I think he says it with a smile on his face, not as a put-down, but just a statement of fact and to affirm kind of who he is and what he's doing here. We talk about Jesus here as a 12-year-old kid realizes exactly who he is. He is the God-man Savior, the Son of God, ontologically. You know, according to Scripture, God is complex, and the will of God is complex. But what we do know is there's one God who exists in three persons. And this isn't one plus one plus one equals one. This is more like one times one times one equals one. Uh, God, that's the essence of God. Uh, true, triune, transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, just, righteous, sovereign, loving, immutable, veracity, eternal. God the Father is all of those attributes. God the Son, who's a separate person, mind, will, emotion, is all of those attributes. Jesus is God, not in the sense of being the same thing or person as God the Father, but having the same attributes as God the Father. God the Holy Spirit, who is a he, not an it, is not the Father, is not the Son, but is God. And then he has all the attributes of deity. So one God in three persons. And we dare to believe on Christmas that the second person of the Trinity took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. The rectangle represents his person. Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. We're seeing the growth of his human, his humanity in this portion of Luke. But he's the son of God by role and title and ontology. And he's now the son of God in human form. Uh, as he's per- first uh, put into a manger, now he's a 12-year-old kid. And as we'll fast forward in a minute as he begins his ministry at age 30. So you got to love Mary. She loves her son. She's not blaspheming. She's just exasperated at the fears that are relieved instantly. And uh, I think her exasperation is punctuated by tears of joy there. His question is not a put down, but just an explanation. And notice the next verse says, verse 50, but they, that is Joseph and Mary, did not understand the statement which he made to them. They know who he is, just based on the virgin birth scenario. But they're not exactly sure on what that means exactly and when he's going to actually begin his 
a messianic ministry, and I certainly don't understand the theology behind his unique sonship. But, you know, the idea that Jesus says and does things that people don't understand is a very common theme in Scripture. So, Carol, it's okay if you don't understand everything God's doing in your life now, because if you'd been walking around with Jesus or living with Jesus or been his parents, he'd say and do things you didn't understand also. Okay, But if you chew on them long enough and you really want that wisdom, he'll help you to get some insight into that. But as this point, they didn't understand exactly how he was the son of God in a theological sense. Another example of him saying something that wasn't understood is found in John chapter 2, and I chose that because it's also set in the temple during his actual ministry, which begins when he's about 30. But the first major time he's in Jerusalem after his ministry starts, during the Passover, Kylene, what does Luke 2 talk about the 12-year-old boys in Jerusalem for the Passover? John 2 talks about the first Passover during his ministry, Carla. So we're back in Jerusalem, same temple, same city, same feast. That's really ultimately about him. And he's saying to the uh, same type people he had been talking to in Luke 2. Who's he talking to? The teachers of the law. Who's he talking to that are questioning him in John 2? Why did you upset the apple cart? Why did you put the temple uh, out of business? You know, that's when Jesus cleanses the temple the first time. They come to him and say, hey, what sign do you do to prove you qualify to lord over this temple uh, worship dynamic we've set up that's making us lots of money. You'd have to be the Messiah to have that kind of authority. And Jesus says, well, here's the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And he's talking about his body, but he's standing in front of the temple building, and they're thinking literally. Jesus doesn't mean what he says. He means what he means by what he says the way he says it. So he says, destroy this temple, naos, that's for the inner sanctuary. That's not here on the big... Uh, term for the entire area, but for the Holy of Holies. Destroy this temple, but he's talking about his body, in three days, and, and in three days I'll raise it up. So three years later, John says, a couple of verses after that, when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples, who were there then also, watching this interaction, but didn't understand it, remembered he had said, destroy the temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, and then they believed, they connected the dots, and believed that statement was talking about not destroying the physical temple, but his uh, his temple, which was his body. Another cool thing Jesus says is this. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son with the eyes of faith and believes in him will have everlasting life, and I myself will resurrect that person, will raise that person up on the last day. Uh, this is the will of, of, of my Father. Thelemos means this is absolutely going to happen. You can take it to the bank. That everyone, doesn't matter what color, country, or culture, there's only one race according to Scripture, human race. Everything else is just phenotype. It was just one genotype. Everyone who beholds the Son with the eyes of faith and believes in Him. To believe doesn't mean to believe that He lived or something or did certain things. It's active, receptive trust. That word for believe is pistua. It means to trust. I can believe... Uh, this chair, I can intellectually believe this chair could hold me up if I stepped on it. I also know if I stepped on it, the elders would get very mad at me for damaging church property. But I'm not trusting it to hold me up until right now. Okay, 
I'm I'm pistooing this chair. I'm depending on it to hold me up. That's the uh, faith that is the basis of salvation. It's a rational act, but it's not a meritorious work. It's at the empty hands of a sinner that accepts the Savior. And you've got this promise if you believe that. This is the will of my Father, that Eric Ward, who has beheld the Son and believed in him, will have everlasting life. And Jesus says, I myself will raise up Eric Ward on the last day. That's that's pretty good. The cool thing about embracing Christ as Savior is now all these promises he makes to believers, you can put your name in the blank. Okay, Deborah Smith? This is the will of my Father, that Deborah Smith, who has beheld the Son and believed in him, will have everlasting life, and I myself will raise her up on the last day. That's called the gospel. The gospel is a term that means good news. The good news isn't that you've broken God's standards and you can't fix it. It's true, but that's not good news. That's bad news, okay? The good news is God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, guilty and unable to save ourselves, Christ died for us. And when you think about this miraculous incarnation that we don't understand, but it's clearly taught in Scripture, you got to have the God-man to... to uh, bridge the chasm between the real God and man. Because God is absolutely ontologically perfect and we're not. Um, God doesn't need anything from us. He's perfectly fine without us. But he loves us anyway and he makes it possible for him to accept us into heaven forever without compromising his character by having the God-man Savior go to the cross, pay our sin debt, be resurrected supernaturally. You can't reproduce it in the laboratory. And through faith in him, he promises that everyone who beholds me and believes, I will raise up in the last day. Let's keep going. Look at verse 51. And he went down with them. Uh, and by the way, going up to Jerusalem and going back down to Nazareth is talking about elevation. Because Jerusalem's on top of a mountain. So even if you're coming from the north, you're moving south or down the way we think about it. But you always climb the mountain to get to Jerusalem. They're going downhill now to go back home to Nazareth. And he, Jesus, went down with his parents and eventually came back to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. And yet his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Isn't that interesting? We've seen that before. Go back to chapter uh, 2, verse 19. Look at verse 19 in the same chapter. Now you guys probably know that the first 20 verses are the Christmas story. It's, it's the the actual story of the birth of Jesus, as opposed to Matthew 2, which is actually probably a year later. But uh, look what happens after the shepherds have said, we've had an angel tell us the Messiah has been born here, and he's going to be in a, a cattle trough, and here he is. Verse 19, you gotta you got to love Mary, man. She's a deep thinker. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Go back to the passage we just looked at, verse 51, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So she's connecting the dots, okay? But it's still a process for her too. Now watch this. What Jesus doesn't do, and any idea that he's being uh, disrespectful in verse 49 is blown away by what happens here in verse 51 because he doesn't say, well, mom and dad has been nice, but I'm staying in Jerusalem now. I'm the son of God. You know, watch my smoke here. You know, he doesn't do that. What does it say? He went back to Nazareth with them, and he continued in subjection to them until he achieved full adulthood. The term submission in Scripture 
is grossly misunderstood. Uh, you know, we're told that in the church we're told to submit to elders, we're told to submit to kings and people in authority over us over in civilian government. Uh, uh, wives are to submit to husbands, children are to submit to their parents. Uh, submission is not a sign of weakness or inferiority. Uh, it's a voluntary choosing to follow the lead or direction of another. Okay, And that's important. The word hupotasso there means to put under. Uh, submission can't be forced. Okay, I mean, if I have a firearm... And put, and I hope I would never do this to anybody unless they were like into my house. And I do have a judge, like a shotgun shell and a pistol, so don't break into my house at night. Call me before you come over, you know. But somebody can take a weapon and say, stand up, and you're going to stand up, aren't you? But that's not submission, that's coercion, okay? When God calls us to submit, He's asking us to give somebody else our willingness to follow their lead. But watch this. Anybody we're supposed to submit to in a human sphere is always under God. The idea that the the husband is the five-star general and the wife's the buck private, if that was ever preached and taught in evangelical circles, you ought to repent of that. That's not the way it is. God's the five-star general. The husband's the executive, uh, is the commanding officer. The wife's the executive officer. The kids are the buck privates. Forget about the kids being in charge. You better teach them you're in charge before they get bigger than you or get their car keys or you're in a lot of trouble. But here Jesus is submitting to their authority. Does that mean he's inferior to them, Steve? Does that mean he's weak, stupid, docile? No. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, um, yeah, wives are supposed to submit to the righteous, loving leadership of a godly husband. But if the husband says, hey, we're going to go knock over the liquor store tonight and you're taking the gun, what do you say to that? Sorry, sir, I can't do that. <laughs> He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Always submit to legitimate human authority until, unless, unless it contradicts God's authority, and then you've got to submit to His authority. But submission is not weakness or uh, slavery. It's something that you give to somebody else who has a legitimate right to, to be a leader, to be an initiator, and you respond to that. And that's what's happening here. As long as He's a kid, a child, he continues in subjection to his parents. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor of God and man. Now jump over to verse 23 of the next chapter. For me, it's on the same page, but you may have to flip a page or two. Luke 3.23. And we're jumping over the uh, the baptism of Jesus there. But in verse 23 of chapter 3, it says, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about how old? 30. So go back to our last verse of chapter 2. He's 12 years old. We're not going to be told any more about his development until his baptism. And uh, we, we do know, though, he's he's growing in his humanity and wisdom and stature in favor of God and man. And he begins his ministry when he's about 30. And so here's the thing, Anthony. People said, well, I wonder what Jesus did and said from the time he was 12 until he began his ministry. And because he had such radical ideas, he must have gone to India and become a Buddhist, or he must have gone to the Qumran, to the Essene community, and learned about the sons of uh, light and the, the, the sons of darkness. Or maybe he went to Athens and got some philosophical concepts. Now, now uh, I'm not sure what he did, but the, the Gospels just generally say he was a carpenter working with his father. And what specifically I do know is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, Sue, 
when he's baptized and he begins his ministry, what does the voice of God the, God the Father say about him? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he wasn't running guns or doing anything illegal. He's living a righteous life, getting up six days a week. They didn't have a two-day weekend. They worked six days a week, working hard with his hands. That sanctifies good, honest work. Some of you guys, Dale's out in the uh, oil field uh, seven days a week because he owns a little oil company that he's got to depend on himself to make sure it works. And you know, it's the kind of thing Jesus did for for from the time he was an apprentice at 12 all the way till he was 30. So some important truth in there. Let's stop like this. Uh, that's what we're told Jesus is called by the voice of the Father during his baptism. So we don't know exactly the details of his life from 12 to 30 beyond the fact that he's affirmed to be a carpenter at that time. But we know that God the Father says he's perfect. He's lived a perfect, righteous life under the law, not necessarily under the oral law, which is pickier than Scripture. But this is what it is. And I would say about this passage, even as a boy, Jesus was very much aware of who he was, the unique Son of God, and yet at the same time, he was voluntarily in submission to his human parents. Okay? This is a really good passage for you, Clay. Okay? Because you're a bright guy. I see you as a future senator or president someday. Uh, and I said it first, so remember that, okay? And Henry, whatever he does, I know you're better than him at everything anyway, so you'll be even better than he will. You'll run, you'll, you'll win presidency three times. He's going to go into it twice. You'll appeal the 22nd Amendment or whatever, right? But, uh, it's a good passage for you guys because your dad won't always, you know, he won't always be right even. And he's never going to be too cool in your eyes, although he's very cool in my eyes. But he's always going to have your best interests at heart. And you want to be like Jesus as a teenager, and he's on the cusp of teenagerhood here. Okay, uh, he loved God. He was the son of God, but he continued in his subjection to his parents. And that's an important thing to remember. So we'll continue with the gospel of Luke. Lord willing, next week we'll see him being circumcised and then dedicated as an infant in Jerusalem. But the real, real meaning of Christmas is just simply that the babe in the manger was and is the God-man Savior. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would take the truths of your word about Jesus, about who you are and your purpose and program, and change this from just mere abstract information to transforming truth in the hearts of all of us that uh, really want to be taught by it. Help us to have that hunger to embrace this beyond information, to life-changing truth. We pray for anyone here who's not from the depth of their heart trusted in the God-man Savior as their Redeemer is the one who died to pay for their sin debt and rose again. Help them to see and believe for the bulk of us who have trusted Christ. Help us to see wonderful things from your law, implications and applications maybe that I didn't bring out and I didn't even see. But as you shine light on your word, it is living and powerful and it never returns void. And I pray that we'll be actively involved in that process and product and you'd be pleased with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.